Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. We had a brief hiatus last week due to scheduling conflicts, but we are back and better than ever with this week's Draft Deep Dives edition of the podcast. So I'm here, as I always am, for Draft Deep Dives with my co-host, my no ceilings and hashtag basketball colleague, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing this fine Tuesday afternoon? Nick, I'm great. Thrilled to be back. 100% my fault last week. Just life got in the way. Um, But a lot of basketball, a lot of good things have happened. Um, Really excited to talk about two of these guys today. I don't think that's fair. It was definitely partially my fault. Maybe we'll go (laughs) 70-30, but I don't think 100% is fair. There you go again. Just always trying to to take some of the credit. It's it's, it's infuriating. fine. (laughs) Fine. I see how it is. Well, you know what? On on the heels of that, we're of course going to spend this entire episode talking about you and things that you've written. So thanks Thank thanks you. for starting things out with that. Yes, we'll give you all the credit you could possibly want. So we were originally going to cover one of your two Friday screener articles so far for last week's podcast. So instead, we'll give you all a double dose of fun today and go over each of your past two Friday screener articles. And We're starting today with your first Friday screener piece on someone who's certainly gotten a lot of love this young college basketball season, Jabari Smith. And you did a lengthy breakdown of his defensive footwork, which is one of the many reasons why he's considered, I think, pretty much consensus top three level pick at this point. And certainly a lot of that is on the heels of his defense. And it's not like he's someone who doesn't show up with highlight reel blocks on a frequent basis, but defensive footwork is a little bit more of an underrated discussion topic. That being said, defensive footwork is something that we have talked about time and time again on this podcast because it's one of your favorite things to talk about. So the best. what a surprise that you're writing a full length article about defensive footwork for one of the top prospects in the game. But let's sort of start with the high-level thoughts on Jabari Smith's defense overall, obviously with an emphasis on his footwork in particular. He's been so much fun and such a revelation on defense, and it's really one of the main reasons why so many have propelled him into that top three conversation, and I've seen a lot of people even having him number one. For me, that's still a little bit of a stretch right now. I want to see him against a little higher level competition, but he's been incredibly impressive and it all stems from the defensive end. At 6'10", 220, he's doing things that other guys his size typically and historically haven't really been able to do. He's incredibly strong, which allows him to guard up in position where it wouldn't shock me if in the future we see him playing some small ball five, but The fascinating part about his game is what he does on the perimeter. And that's really what I focused on in that Friday screener piece. And he can switch pretty much on any position he wants to because of his defensive fundamentals. And anyone who's read my stuff in the past or listened to us over the past few years knows my affinity for defensive footwork and how it's the foundation for everything defenders do. And his is absolutely perfect about 90 to 95% of the time. And it's funny because we've seen certainly with Evan Mobley this year for the Cleveland Cavaliers, how incredibly impactful it can be to have a young big who can move their feet like that on defense. On the flip side, there's been a lot of conversation over the past few years, really, that Rudy Gobert is a spectacular defender during the NBA regular season, but 
the playoffs come around and he keeps getting roasted by guards on the perimeter. And, you know, that's, that's a bit of a problem, even for someone who's that spectacular of a presence on the defensive end in basically every other context. But with Jabari Smith, you're seeing already during his freshman campaign that he has that kind of, it's not really innate because he clearly works a lot on his footwork and his positioning, but you know, there's a big difference between being someone who can lock down the rim versus someone who can not only lock down the rim, but also switch out onto smaller guys and, you know, have him be someone who's not ever going to be a weak point in a defense is such a huge card in his favor heading into the NBA draft. It's really stunning. Just watching him, just all you need is one possession to really observe and absorb his commitment to defensive fundamentals because the the stance he's in is one of the lowest defensive stances that you'll see from anyone let alone a guy who's 610 and technically a power forward it looks like he's essentially just doing wall sits all day and just constantly walking around in a squat because he is that low to the ground and his stance is so wide that it is nearly impossible to get him off balance with crossovers or step backs. He's able to re- respond and react and mirror the ball handlers movements with immense ease that we rarely ever see from an 18 year old. And that ability to move his feet, always be in position, always be on balance and really suffocate the ball handler gives him such positional versatility, gives him whatever lineup he's in, additional versatility and makes him that 82 game defender, that regular season, great defender, as well as that 16, that playoff uh, defender at an exceptionally high level. So in the future, I would be stunned if we don't see him performing that similar defensive fundamentals in the NBA playoffs, because he is that good. It's so impressive and it carries over and spreads throughout his entire defensive game. So this is going to sound ridiculous at the start, but bear with me here on this one. But something that you and I have talked about with footwork in the past is just how much it raises the floor of a player Mm -hmm. if they are able to get themselves. There's a difference between knowing where the right positions are and being able to get yourselves into the right positions defensively. And this is offensive footwork, but it's something that we've talked about before in regards to DeMar DeRozan, where there's a certain baseline level that his footwork allows him to get in terms of his ability to get into mid-range shots or get into short post looks against smaller guys. And there's some level that any player who has that kind of footwork will be able to benefit from that, you know, being able to get into position more easily on the defensive end, being able to maneuver into better shots on the offensive end. But if you combine that sort of baseline understanding and ability with the kind of athletic talent that DeMar DeRozan has, that Jabari Smith has, it just takes them up to another level because, you know, there's a certain sort of baseline that you can reach with all the right fundamentals. But if you're not the kind of ridiculous athlete, you can only take advantage of that to a certain degree. And Jabari Smith has already shown pretty clearly that he has both of those tools in his toolkit. It's such a unique and special combination. And I I think that's really important to point out because we frequently see uber athletic guys get pegged as great defenders purely because they're uber athletic and theoretically they can guard multiple positions and switch onto guys and defend on the perimeter and protect the rim from the weak side. 
but that's not really based on anything other than their raw athleticism. Similarly, we see more fundamental guys who have this awesome footwork, this great understanding, but they're so athletically inept or behind their peers that they don't really have a chance to compete at that highest level that their fundamentals suggest that they should. Jabari Smith is taking the best of both those worlds and combining it into one defender. And when you do that, you get not only a special prospect, but you get a guy who's going to be on multiple All-NBA defensive teams, a guy who can be the cornerstone of an NBA defense. I, I just cannot wait until we get him into actual SEC play. So we see him against those higher level athletes and ball handlers, and we see him suffocate them and switch on the perimeter and then block from the weak side and really combine his IQ, his athleticism against the highest competition, because it's all there for him to really take over this college season and be the darling that he's kind of already emerging as. And all of that stems from his defensive footwork. Now we should also at least talk about the one nitpick that you brought up in the article, namely Mm -hmm. that he is a great athlete, but sometimes he's a bit slower footed than you might expect slash hope for. And that I think is certainly a concern worth discussing just in terms of his play the rest of the college season. But that's something that will get even more magnified at an NBA level where anytime you take one step out of position, if you're wrong footed, or if you get to the spot just a half second too slowly, you're going to get blown by and you're going to look bad. Even if you played great defense for you know, 90% of the shot clock. If you make it close out just a little too slow at the last second, it's going to make the whole possession sort of look like it unraveled before you. So what are your thoughts on that sort of aspect of Smith's defense? Because certainly it seems like it's tied back to what we've sort of been talking about here, namely that the fundamentals are really good. And there are a few minor areas that if he tightens it up could make a huge difference. But the flip side of that, of course, is that you're seeing those kind of mistakes crop up if you watch his film. Yeah, and in the piece, I stressed how much I was nitpicking. I I know it was really nitpicking, but that's what we have to do when we're really trying to dig down on these guys' skills. And every, or almost every, kind of lapse in his on-ball defense came from him overextending himself, where he had this incredible stretch of four to six seconds of on-ball defense where he cut off the initial drive, cut off the counter, cut cut off the counter to the counter, and the ball handler retreated and Jabari chased him all the way out to near the logo. And that was just a little too much space to give these smaller, quicker guards because it's a little easier for them to then cross over and attack that high foot. And when they do that, he's just a little slow at flipping his hips in in that much space when he's closer to the arc and a little tighter on the guy and has that safety net of a guy behind him, he's a little more reliable with that. But when he really stretches himself out and overextends out well past the three-point line, that's when he gets in a little bit of trouble. And that's when his foot speed, or lack thereof, kind of starts to show itself. In the NBA, I think that will be more of an issue, at least early on. It's not, as he improves, or as his body continues to mature and he improves that foot speed, he can improve his hip flexibility. 
I, th- I expect that to improve at least somewhat, but it will limit his ability to fully switch on to point guards, at least that far out. And every season we see guys stretching farther and farther out with their shooting range. So he may not be a one through five defender. He may be a two through five, which is still an incredible trait to bring to the table. Um, but even when he did get beat, when he got, had that high foot attacked and he was a little slow to flip his hips, what I absolutely loved was that he rarely didn't try to recover. He was always fighting to get back. He was always reading where the ball handler was going. And even if his teammate cut off that drive, he was veering to cut off their next move. And that's where his awareness and intellect come into play. So it will be an issue in the NBA, especially early unless he has some dramatic improvement in his foot speed and hip flexibility. But I don't think it will be a long-term issue that really renders him ineffective on the perimeter. I think the key word for me that you have been using about this is how much he overextends. He's overextending. And, Mm -hmm. you know, to overextend, you have to be making that kind of effort in the first place. right? Right. And, you know, there is something certainly to be said for the fact that all of the errors that crop up, well, not all the errors for him, but the vast majority of the errors that crop up for him are because he's trying to do everything as opposed to, you know, just trying to position himself near the rim or, you know, trying to cut off ball handlers near the top of the key. He's trying to do as much as he can on every single defensive possession. And even when he does overextend and get wrong footed a bit, he does always try and find a way to get himself back into the play. So, you know, you said you're nitpicking and I think the easiest way to tell that you're nitpicking is what we're talking about here is he tries to do just a little bit too much. He cares too much. Exactly. That's, that's, (laughs) if you're going to give someone a criticism, that's one of the best criticisms you can give. Exactly. And it's always, it's always the the worst interview answer you can possibly give, but it's, for Jabari, it's it's true. It, there, there's a lot of validity to it. And because it, it always comes when he does overextend himself like that, it always comes after he's already suffocated the guy and made his life miserable. So it's he's not content with just embarrassing them. He wants to emasculate them and take the ball and completely ruin their day. He wants them to remember that he was guarding them on every <laughs> single possession. And I, I imagine that they do every time because he would be absolutely horrifying to go against. So before we move on, we've spent a lot of time on Jabari Smith's defense, but he's not someone who's in top three pick consideration just for his defense. So let's just sort of touch quickly on his offensive game before we move on here. And I was not expecting him to hit transition pull-up threes as frequently (laughs) as he has at this point in the young season, but I mean, if he can do that, like there's a lot of Jaron Jackson Jr. vibes there and the best version of Jaron Jackson Jr. vibes, not like, you know, what he, more like what he could have been pre-injuries. And I'm not saying the book is out on Jaron Jackson Jr. at all at this point, but, Mm -hmm. you know, these are the kind of flashes that made Jaron Jackson Jr. the number four overall pick in his draft and Jabari Smith. Could well, I mean, I've been saying top three this entire podcast. He could well go higher than that. Yeah. It's so important what he can do on the offensive end of the floor in addition to what he brings with his defense. It's been, I think, the most pleasant surprise of the season is that 
pull-up shooting. I, I did not expect it when, you know, the, the, the first time I saw him knock down like a spot up three, it's like, oh, that, that looks good. That looks fluid, high release. He looks comfortable. It looked effortless. Awesome. So this incredible defender now has spot up ability. Sweet. And then possessions later, he comes down in transitions, <laughs> and then he's hitting mid range fadeaways. It's like, oh my lord, this dude could be incredible. And it's, I, I think he's pretty clearly taken himself out of that, you know, three and D forward or stretch four role, and really pivoted into, you know, that potential all star forward level of prospect, which he always had that the defense always gave him an incredible baseline of what type of player he'd be. But this offense, this early season offensive arsenal that he's showing off regularly, it could really take him to the next level. And I, I think what you said about limiting him to top three, maybe doing him a disservice at this point. That's honestly entirely fair. I mean, I don't think I would, be willing to consider him for number one yet but if he mm-hmm. keeps doing if he keeps doing this it's going to be hard to keep him out of that conversation for sure yeah and i i still have chet and paulo ahead of him I, I still have him at three but i if he does this all through sec play if he does this throughout the tournament if he continues to expand his kind of ball handling and on on ball creation i it it'll be hard to pass on him he's going to make it really difficult for nba teams to see his name on the board and go a different direction and you mentioned passing in passing pun intended sorry in advance but that i think is going to be very important for jabari because he's shown that he can do a lot with the ball in his hands the question is what he can do when he's getting double team more frequently and the ball's being forced out of his hands so That'll certainly be something to look out for in conference play. But, I mean, given the impact that he has on the defensive end and given the impact that he has off the ball as a shooting threat in addition to what he's showing with pull-ups this year, yeah, it'll be hard for him to not at least be in the conversation for one of the top two picks. And the the kind of on-ball creation is what has me just a little more hesitant on him. I, I like his ball handling in the open court. I think he's capable of attacking closeouts or backing guys down and kind of using a turnaround there. But to really score in isolation, I haven't been fully convinced of that skill yet. And the playmaking I think is a really important part of what his game could be too. There hasn't, it hasn't been super impressive so far. It's probably been one of the low lights, one of the very few low lights. Um, but if he continues to show just a little bit of, you know, stringing together one or two dribble moves into a mid-range pull-up or being more reliable on a step-back three or finding a cutter or just even operating a simple pick-and-roll two-man game, God, it just what he could be as a player is so fascinating and just really exciting when you think of it as a roster build from from a roster building standpoint. Yeah, you brought up hitting cutters, and I think that's going to be the biggest thing for him because given his size and athleticism along with what he's started to show in terms of his mid-range game, if he can just get a mismatch and have a smaller player on him and be able to take advantage of that for his teammates as well as himself, just have him stand in the high post and if someone's running towards the rim, just be able to find them pretty reliably, I mean, that'll open up a whole lot of other things for him and the 
players around him, even if he doesn't get to the point where he's making high-level passing reads, as long as he's mm-hmm. making simple reads on cuts, I think that'll make a huge difference for him. Right, and I, I think we're both on the same page that when we talk about his passing, it's not in the realm of being that primary initiator because I don't think that's in his future, but being that high-level ball mover and that making sure that the offense continues to flow and that you do find those open teammates, that's a really important piece to that can really take your his individual offense and the team's offense to another level. Speaking of passing, speaking of making reads, let's move on to our second Friday screener of the day for Caleb Houston, who was someone who was touted as a potential lottery pick coming into the year, mostly on the basis of his shooting. His shooting has not been quite at the level results-wise where people might want it to be. I don't think his form has looked bad, but he hasn't been hitting shots. But one thing he certainly has been doing to counterbalance the fact that his shots aren't going down is just making those simple passing reads and kicking the ball ahead to guys and hitting open teammates when he's being heavily covered. And given that he is such a shooting talent who I think everybody expects his shooting numbers to pick up at least over the course of the season, it is incredibly encouraging that even without that shooting success in the early going, he's still finding ways to contribute to his team on offense. It's really hard not to make the Franz Wagner comparison because and it feels lazy. Oh, the the wing from Michigan who does similar stuff, it, but they, they play a lot alike. And the way Caleb Houston continues to make an, an off, a positive impact on offense, despite his shooting woes is I think one of the most impressive parts of his game and most, at least what has me still really encouraged about his future development. I, I think the shot will eventually come around. I, he was too good of a shooter in high school. I know he was a little inconsistent in FIBA play, but in high school, he was a dead eye shooter. That's what he was brought in as. That's what everyone pegged him as being. I struggle to find a world or to see a world where that completely disappears and he's just not a good shooter anymore. Like you said, the form looks good. I think eventually it'll fall. If he wasn't doing the extra things that he's currently doing, I'd be way more concerned. The way he moves off ball, the way he runs in transition, the way he finds open teammates and runs off screens and makes these awesome live dribble whip passes to cutters or runs or slips a pocket pass to the roller. And the way he changes angles on his passes is so impressive and really highlights his high understanding of floor imbalances and where the defensive rotations are coming from and his ability to read that first and second level of the defense. I, again, I don't think he's going to be a primary initiator, but as a six, seven, what, what is he? Six, eight wing running off of a down screen cutting middle, and then being able to kick out a, a one-handed live dribble pass to a corner shooter or toss a lob or slip a bounce pass. It's a really important and valuable skill that so many of these wings that we project as connecting wings or three and D wings that they don't have because he's doing this on the move. He doesn't need to stop in isolation and run a pick and roll and make one pass. It's I'm going to run off screens. I'm going to read the entire floor and find the open man. And the fact that he's doing that despite his scoring struggles is so encouraging in my eyes. And the fact that he's six, eight 
just makes everything else a whole lot simpler. I mean, <laughs> this is a bit of a simplistic take, but you know, the fact that he's six eight and has shown that he can read the first and second blackables of defenses as a mm-hmm. passer, you know, not as a primary guy, but certainly as a secondary guy, that just means you can slot him so many other places on the floor. He's got the shooting touch that you could consider him as maybe a stretch for if he puts on a few pounds and him out of the short role as a four making those kinds of passes will be huge to an NBA offense. Alternatively, you put him in as like a two guard alongside a bigger primary playmaker, say a Cade Cunningham or a Luka Doncic. And he's the guy who's making secondary plays when the primary guy is getting doubled. Just him having the size that he does combined with his shooting touch, I think gives him a lot more opportunities to have his passing skill set play out from different areas on the floor. And I I really like that he's, it doesn't feel like he's forcing the shot either, where he's still using it as a weapon to get the, to draw the defense out. So then he can attack closeouts and find cutters or shooters because he is, that entire Michigan team is really consistent about putting pressure on the rim and either feeding their big man down low or finding open shooters on the outside. They're constantly moving, and he's really bought into that as well. And that movement combined with that IQ and the passing accuracy and vision is just really special for that position and I think gives him a leg up on a lot of other players because when the shot isn't falling, like we're seeing, he can still make an incredibly positive impact and make his teammates better that the traditional three and D wings simply can't. And that I think is also an incredibly positive sign about his basketball IQ that he's coming into these games saying, okay, you know, my shots not falling tonight. I'm going to create looks for other guys. I'm not going to go over 17. I'm going to go over four with six assists and seven rebounds, you know, realizing, okay, if this isn't working, I've got to find something else that works. And being purely reliant on your shot means that if you have those nights when your shot isn't falling, the only thing you can do is, okay, well, I'm just going to keep shooting until I get back in a rhythm, you know, and that's the kind of thing that can really damage a team. Mm -hmm. And the flip side of that is that if you're, it's not just the willingness to be, someone who says, okay, I'm going to take a step back with my shooting and create looks for other people, but the awareness to sort of realize that the best way that I can contribute positively to my team tonight is creating looks for other guys. And there are some players who aren't willing to do that. There are some players who just don't have the vision to be capable of doing that. And Caleb Houston very clearly is neither of those. And another, it's a small thing, but what I really... It, it seems like he has an incredible amount of self-awareness where he knows he's not this explosive athlete. And even though he's consistently putting pressure and getting the ball into the lane, he knows that he's not going to be skying over defenders or finishing through guys a whole lot, but he's really subtle with these little head fakes and kind of raising his shoulders just momentarily to get the rim protector to bite And then from there, he either slips a pocket pass or wraps around the defender to feed to feed the roller. Am I overrating that? Because I'm so hand hand up. I I am a Michigan fan, so I am a little biased here. So I, I may be viewing the glasses half full, but I feel like we don't see a whole lot of six, eight, three, quote unquote, three and D wings with that kind of 
subtlety to their passing game and just ease at changing the angles to make sure that they find their guys. I don't think that's homerism at all. I think that's a huge part of his game. And I think that if you might have feet of space in college that you're creating with those, you know, head fakes, those are inches in the NBA. And just being able to exploit those small windows of space is I think critical for anybody who's an NBA prospect, who's not this next level athlete, because if you are that next level athlete, you know, you can ram through that inch of space and still find your way to the rim. If you're not, you have to be a little bit more subtle about your game, about how you create space for passes, how you create space for your shots and him being able to do that at the age that he's shown he's able to do that is I think a really positive indicator, almost more for his NBA future than from what we'll see from him in higher level college competition. Well, that that's reassuring. Yeah, I feel um, better now. Yeah, a, a little bit. We're, we're getting there. Um, so, my concern is that if his shot continues to not fall, NBA teams are just going to be like, "Why do I want this unathletic shooter who can't shoot?" and he's just going to get mispegged or be an incredible steal for someone at the back end of the first round. I'm, I'm continuing to see him drop and I get it because he's a shooter who isn't shooting and Michigan's struggling because there really isn't any shooting on that team and they were overrated to begin with. But I, the, the, the Franz comparison kind of seems ridiculous now based on what Franz is doing in Orlando because he's having an absolutely incredible year, but the way he played at Michigan looks very similar. I mean, are, are you seeing similar things that I'm, or am I just taking crazy pills and seeing a guy in the same Jersey? I think that Franz is significantly better as a playmaker for others. And I think that is the huge sure. difference in the evaluation that even though we've seen some serious positives from Caleb Houston's passing, he's, not at the level that Franz is. And I was also quite high on Franz last season. So, you know, yeah. that's that's yeah. a bit of a lofty comp from my perspective. But the flip side of that also is that Franz's shooting was very much work in progress. Whereas Houston, that's, you know, that's the that's the headline skill for him. And it hasn't exactly been going down so far this season, but I think that we both believe that his percentages will go up over the course of the season, even if he doesn't have like a red hot stretch that gets him to the point where he ends the season in the high thirties, low forties from three point range. I, I don't think it's going to be at the level where it is now for the entire season. And, and that's what I'm most excited about too, is that he's doing this without the shot falling, but teams are still kind of treating him like he's this dead eye shooter, like that he was supposed to be coming out of high school if he continues to not shoot as the season progresses and defenses change their approach to how they defend him and they start going under screens and stop chasing him so aggressively and having short or short closeouts on him, I'm going to be absolutely fascinated to see if his passing ability continues to reach kind of the the same levels that he's shown so far, or if we see, more of a drop-off because he doesn't have that athletic athletic ability to create advantages or he just kind of gets flummoxed because for the first time in his life, defenses are treating him as a, as a non-shooter. 
Yeah, I'll be honest. I'm pretty worried about that because I think that a lot of the space that he gets for those passing windows is because defenses have to respect him to the degree that they do from three-point range. I feel like, I don't know, that's a hypothetical in the sense that if he continues to not shoot, will all of this happen? And I'm still very much of the belief that he will shoot much better than he has been. But I think that would dramatically change the evaluation because if he doesn't shoot to the level that we think he will, not only does that, you know, tighten the windows for his passes, but I think that just makes it a lot harder for me to sort of see where he would fit in on an NBA floor. Cause if he can't shoot, then he kind of has to be like a playmaking four type. And I just don't know if he brings enough else to the table as that playmaking four type, if he can't really shoot well from long range. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And I, I don't think he's necessarily physical enough, at least at this point, to play a full-time four. Um, maybe, you know, if the shooting's there, right, it's way more realistic. But if, well, if, if the it's shooting's not, there, he's playing a different role true, than, very true. you know, full four. Yeah, no, that that's incredibly true. Yeah, he, he's just such a fascinating eval at this point because – the, the passing is something I wasn't expecting. I was expecting the shooting, which is non-existent at this point. And it's just essentially viewing him as a completely different player than he was in high school at Montverde. And it, it's almost trying to forget what I previously knew or thought of and completely pivoting and trying to figure out what this new role is if he is if he's going to have to pivot into this six, eight kind of secondary playmaker. And it, it's just such a different player than what my previous thoughts were, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I was talking earlier about how I think his passing acumen really makes him a much more versatile player, but that versatility is kind of dependent on teams wanting to play him for his shooting. And if you take that out of the picture, you're looking at a player who you know, maybe as a valuable end of the rotation kind of 10 minutes a game connector type, but that's a very different prospect than the prospect that you would have thought you were evaluating two months ago. And, you know, I have railed frequently on this podcast and in other places about how the small sample size of three-point shooting in college yes. basketball makes it yes. incredibly hard to evaluate how good these shooters actually are. Right, And so that almost means by necessity that when you see these kinds of outlier performances on the low end, like we have for Caleb Houston, or like, in my opinion, we did for Jaden Ivey last season at Purdue, who's now Hmm. shooting 38% from three point range, closer to the 40 ish percent shooter that he was in high school. The sample size of 73 pointers in a college season is pretty much nothing. I mean, there were evaluators who thought that Derek Williams was going to be a 40% three-point shooter in the NBA because he shot 40% from three-point range in one college season. And he gets to the NBA and he's basically a sub 30% three-point shooter. It's like, okay, well, if you were only evaluating on that tiny sample size, you know, that with that kind of shooting splits, like if you're a 30% three-point shooter and you take... 10 threes and knock down five, you're not a 50% three point shooter. And if you took a hundred threes, you'd probably be a heck of a lot closer to 30 out of a hundred than 50 out of a hundred. But if what you're relying on is that tiny sample size, you know, that's, 
that's what you've got to evaluate. And especially with a freshman who was touted as such a great shooter, when he comes in and starts cold, it looks really bad from the evaluation side. But it's also very difficult for me to believe that that's just going to be what he continues to do. The flip side of that, as you've been discussing, is if he does, in fact, continue to not knock down those shots, maybe two, three years from now, he shows, no, actually, I'm a high 30s, low 40s, three-point shooter, and I just had the worst season of my life right before I got drafted. But you know, you have to go with the data that you have, and if the data that you have shows he's not knocking down these shots in college, you have to sort of think about, okay, if this continues, there will certainly be NBA teams who think he's not really that much of a shooter anymore. And if that's how you're evaluating him, then what can he do with his game? And I think the answer is he can do something, as we've seen with his passing, but maybe it's not enough if the shooting doesn't come around at least a little bit. I, I think that's a great point. And kind of similar to Jabari, how Jabari's defense really gave him a baseline of what type of player he could be. I think Caleb's passing gives him that similar baseline, not to the same level, obviously a much lesser level and a much lesser role, but it's something. And it's that floor awareness, that IQ, that passing vision and accuracy that could give him at least a role. It would be a much lesser role than all of us or most of us hoped for or thought coming into the season, but it's still a role. And we've seen players like a Kyle Anderson succeed and he's not the greatest athlete in the world. He's named slow-mo for God's sakes. And, but he's a really smart player and knows where to be and how to move the ball. So if Caleb Houston ends up being Kyle Anderson, I think that's would probably be a disappointment based on his projections coming out of high school. But Kyle Anderson has also had a really nice NBA career. So I think even though the shooting is way more of a question than I want it to be or and thought it would be, the, the passing is still giving me a baseline because it's showing off his ability and willingness to move off ball, his ability to read the defense and manipulate and move the ball where it needs to go, and his, really his understanding of angles and how to fit the ball through tight spaces to keep it moving, to keep the offense flowing. And, you know, there's the cliche of doing the little things, but yeah. I think that part of what Caleb Houston is showing with his passing is that that in basketball intelligence and that understanding yep. that you mentioned that, okay, he knows where he's supposed to be. And, you know, that kind of thing indicates to me, okay, once he gets to the NBA, he knows what skills he's going to need to work on to stay in the rotation, to go from an end of the bench guy to a 10 minute a game guy. And then from a 10 minute a game guy, you know, maybe he picks up a few post moves and says, you can put me out there as a two guard and I can punish mismatches and, you know, create for the offense. And all of a sudden he goes from a 10 minute a game guy to a 20 minute a game guy. You know, he's shown that he has this proficiency to pick up on small points, minutia on the basketball court that not everybody can pick up on and not everybody can pick up on as quickly as it seems like Caleb Houston has picked up on it at Michigan. So that, as you've said, I think gives him this kind of baseline where even if the shooting doesn't come along to the degree that we would like to think it would, he can still have that kind of Kyle Anderson career of, you know, Kyle Anderson's going to play a decade in the NBA yeah, yeah. as someone who probably couldn't outrun a few of the offensive linemen for the Minnesota Vikings. So, you know, that's certainly something. And those are the kind of skills that are incredibly hard to 
evaluate, but if you can see him making those plays, doing doing the little things, filling in gaps is something that I think I've said before on this podcast numerous times, where if there's four other players on the floor, what does your team need you to do? The more of those boxes that you can check off, the more likely you are to have a bigger role in the rotation. And Caleb Houston certainly seems so far like someone who's going to be able to figure out what those nuances are that will allow him to earn more and more playing time at the NBA level. And and that's where fit and his surrounding pieces are really going to come into play. Because if he is surrounded by shooters and active off-ball movers or is in a system that stresses the importance of ball movement and off-ball screening and relocating and all that stuff that plays to his strengths that Michigan is doing with him that's encouraging all of this ball movement and high-level passing we're seeing from him, then I think, like you said, that him having that role, it'll be a smaller role. It won't be that 3 and D lights-out shooter scoring 15 to 20 points a night role, but it will be 10 to 15 minutes a night of coming in, playing really smart basketball, moving, moving the ball and keeping the offense flowing. So it, it's weird that the passing of a six, eight supposed dead eye shooter is what's keeping me encouraged when the shooting's not there, because it was, it was a skill I really, really wasn't anticipating coming into the season because I, I didn't see much of it because Ryan, Ryan Nemhard ran so much of that Montford offense, but it's so encouraging because it just not just from a ball movement standpoint, but just from an awareness standpoint and how he understands how the opposing defense operates and, you mentioned it. If if you can do that, you can figure out how to play in the league. And the flip side of this is we've been talking this entire time about what happens if you can't shoot. Right. right. Yes. If if you can shoot, then Let's I mean, positive. Yeah. If you can shoot, all of this plays up much better and he's probably a lottery pick, right? I mean, you know, all of this is dependent on okay, what if the one thing that we thought he could do really, really well turns out he can't do it all that well. And I think the much more likely flip side of that is, okay, what if his few games of really horrendous shooting goes away and he has a couple of hot games and all of a sudden, oh, wow, this guy can shoot really well, huh? What a, what a surprise that is. And then, you know, we're talking about him as, again, probably a lottery guy. So, you know, all of this is evaluating, can he still be a useful NBA player if the shot doesn't start falling? And I think... Both of our conclusions seem to be much more yes than no on that front. If he does shoot, I mean, this isn't really that much of a question. He's probably going to have a pretty great NBA career. Yes, I, I love this this pivot to positivity. It's needed because we were far too negative there for yeah. an extended stretch. Uh, yeah, if the shot, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if the second half of the season, he just something clicks and he gets back to the shooting that he was. He ends on this incredible hot streak. And, you know, maybe the percentages at the end of the year still don't quite reflect the level of shooter he is. But if he can get into conference play and through the Big Ten tournament and NCAA tournament and just shoot well, and it doesn't even have to be great. It's just be like has to be like, oh, there he is. That's the guy we were waiting for. Then you combine that with all these connecting skills and awareness and IQ and all that stuff that we've been talking about with the, hey, there's that shooting we've been waiting for, that's when he's going to skyrocket back up boards because I've seen people fall in, 
dropping him into the late 20s and even out of the first round in some cases. And I think that's just absurd at this point. It's because I'm just waiting for that shot to come along. And once it does, fingers crossed, being optimistic, half glass full, he's going to be an awesome player. And I, I really think that he's going to make a lot of these early season overreactions look pretty foolish. All right. Sounds like a pretty solid, positive note to end on. Anything else you want to talk about here before we wrap things up? Uh, I'm just going to plug No Ceilings. It's free. Go subscribe on No Ceilings Substack. Um, follow us on Twitter, all that stuff. I have a fr- another Friday screener coming out this Friday, hence the name, on Jaden Ivey's transition offense. It is yes. incredibly fun. He is yes. a blur in the open court. Um, speaking of rapidly rising up draft boards. Yeah, so check that out. I'm really excited for that. You have something coming up this week as well, right? I do. I will have the next piece in my sleeper deep dive series over on No Ceilings. I'll be talking about Terrence Shannon Jr., who we talked about a bit towards the end of last season, and then he came back to college. (laughs) And now we're going to see. I certainly haven't seen him as a first-round prospect in many places, and I don't agree with that thus you know while Uh i'll be covering him in a deep dive so that will be that will be coming out this thursday so we'll have me on thursday and tyler doing yet another friday screener on friday good times ahead for the no ceilings crew the best of times all right well he is tyler metcalf you can find him as mentioned on no ceilings and hashtag basketball as well as candace hoopus and you can find him on twitter at t-m-e-t-c-a-l-f-1-1 You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And again, as I mentioned, I will have an article on Terrence Shannon Jr. going up on No Ceilings on Thursday. So please check that out if you get a chance. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. That's much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.